0: The woman that we meet in John chapter 4 had come to that particular well hundreds of times no doubt. Every morning she she got up. She washed. She put on her clothes and then she waited. She waited past the point that others were going She waited for a moment of privacy because she knew she would not be welcome in the midst of the respectable people. And when the time was right and she was on her own, she went. She grabbed that familiar bucket or jar. She traveled down that well-known road. She drew out whatever she could and she returned back home again. Each week, it was like this. Day after day, week in and week out, the cycle was repeated. Rise, go, get, return, till she could almost do it in her sleep. She probably could have done it, almost sleepwalking. And yet, no matter how often she went to the well, she still left wishing that she had more. She still left wishing that the satisfaction she drew there trickled down deeper. She wished that it lasted Longer. She wished that it somehow quenched the thirst that kept her coming back, though she wasn't even conscious of the depth of her real need. I wonder sometimes if this is not something of the experience that some of us have as we come here to this place each and every weekend. We go through our familiar paces to get here, most of us. We get up, we brush our teeth, we get dressed, we watch our watch. When the time is right, we get into our car, we drive the familiar road, we come to this place, we arrive, we sit, we stand, we sing, we return home again, almost on autopilot. We could almost do it in our sleep, and some of us, when we're sitting here, we do it in our sleep. And there's rest in the presence of God, and that's okay. Like the woman at the well, no doubt we get something from coming here. We often, however, leave wishing the satisfaction that we drew lasted longer, trickled down deeper, satisfied us more fully, quenched that spiritual thirst that keeps us coming back. In his story from John's Gospel, Jesus suggests that an encounter with him ought to be even better than this. An encounter with God ought to be like drinking from the cold, clear, clean streams of living water. Jesus said the kind of deep drink that satisfies you to the core is what he wants to give us. The kind that leaves us uh, just wiping our mouths with a grateful, ah, that was good. That's what I needed. But Jesus says that to have that experience requires more than just getting ourselves here. To have the kind of of satisfying experience that God wants to give requires more than just going through the usual emotions. Jesus says that the deep refreshment of God comes to those who truly worship God, who truly worship Him. A time is coming, says Jesus, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What did Jesus mean by these cryptic words? What, did he, what did, he, did he really mean when he said these things to this woman long ago? What does it mean to really go to the worship well, as it were? Or to worship well? And how do you and I do this more fully? Well, that's what I want to invite you to think about with me this morning. This is a story with almost bottomless depths to it. I could take many different angles on it with you today. I have in the past. I want to think this morning about what it means to go to this worship well, to worship well in the way that Jesus has in mind. Some of you probably know that the Hebrew word for worship is barak. It comes from a root word, That means to bow down, to um, kneel down, to prostrate, literally prostrate oneself in humility and awe and reverence and wonder before someone vastly greater. That's what the word Barak is all about. Now, when I was a teenager, I I confess to you that during those years of my life, this image of worship seemed altogether revolting to me. I would occasionally be dragged out to church by my family at this season of my life, much to my objection, and I would sit in church squirming as I listened to people speak about bowing down and prostrating and humbling themselves before God. All I could think of when I heard this kind of invitation or command from the religious establishment of my time was an image from the the wizard of oz movie where there's this little wizard hiding behind the curtain you know the scene i'm talking about he's a little fat guy an old guy and he's behind the curtain but he's booming out through a loudspeaker demanding that dorothy bow before oz the great and powerful and i'm thinking to myself as a kid as i'm sitting there So that's what the God these Christians follow wants. He wants us all just to grovel in front of him and tell him how great he is. How pathetic is that, I thought, at this atheistic season of my life. How stupid is that? Most of us have a hard enough time with people we know who demand this kind of constant reassurance. Why would these Christians want to follow after a God who was so insecure that he needed us to bow down in front of him? Does that ever occur to you? Has that ever crossed your mind? Well, I got older and and was slowly growing wiser, and March the 21st came around. March the 21st, 1988 came around, and I went out, as I've shared in the past with some of you, on a blind date, and I met that night Amy Ballard, the woman who was to become my wife. And against all expectations, I met and fell in love with her, And I suddenly found myself wanting to do things I had never wanted to do before. I mean, it was really amazing. I suddenly had desires that I had never really experienced before. Things I had thought revolting I wanted to do. I really wanted to fall down on my knees. I actually did. Get down on my knees and beg her to marry me. Right? I prostrated myself in front of this woman. And considered it pure pleasure and privilege and delight and trembling awe to do just that thing. I wanted to go around doing all kinds of things that pleased her. Things that I wouldn't have normally done, like pick up the house and, you know, sort straighten things up and wear better clothes and... I wanted to sing her praises to the world. I went around talking about her all the time. I tired my friends with my talk of Amy. I wanted to humble myself in celebration of this amazing grace that that would lead somebody as lovely and exciting and intelligent as Amy. Was and is. I need to add the is part, especially. (laughs) It just awed me that somebody like that would love a guy like me. And I have come to see over time that on a much higher plane, this is something of what it means to worship God. In the words of Thomas Carlyle, the basis of worship is wonder. Say that with me. The basis of worship is wonder. That's right. To worship God is to give practical, personal expression to the wonder that fills us up when we see who God is. When we really see who God is and how he has loved us. When you catch a glimpse of the beauty of God's character, you do not have to be forced to sing out in adoration. Even the stones want to cry out when you really see the contrast between the holiness of God and your own character, you do not have to be compelled to, to confess your sin or to seek forgiveness. It is the most natural thing in the world to do. When you, when you think and take in all of the blessings that God has showered upon you, both great and small, when you reflect upon the splendor of his creation, it just doesn't feel anything like a chore to offer God your thanksgiving or to steward to the best of your ability the resources he's entrusted to you. It feels like a privilege to do these things when you appreciate the actual conditions, when you consider the genius of the mind of God, you become really eager to hear His Word when you reflect upon the people and the issues for whom His heart breaks, for whom He cares. You want to bring these people and these issues up in conversation, in prayer, simply because it brings your heart closer to the pounding of His heart. Do you know what I mean? That worship is wonder. And all that flows from the encounter with the wonder of who God is and what he has done and oh how he loves us. Do you worship God in this sense? Do you, do you worship him? It, it, it needs to be said that this kind of intimacy with God that true worship promotes is not immediately appealing to everybody. Um, when Jesus tries to establish this kind of close encounter with the woman at the well of Sychar, she wants none of it at first. Did you notice that as we were reading her story? When Jesus attempts to call her into conversation, bring her in to himself by asking her for a drink, you know, inviting her to do what, what she could do for him, She immediately pushes them away. She quotes the, the familiar law that prohibited a Jew to share a cup with a Samaritan. That pronounced it taboo for a rabbi to speak in public to a woman. She just immediately raises all of the objections as to why this encounter just cannot happen. And when Christ goes on to say that if she will only ask him, he will give her a wonderful gift. He will give her life-giving water. She ignores his obvious offer of spiritual renewal. Instead, she explains to him, or asks him rather, to explain how he thinks he's greater than Jacob and how he plans to draw water from this well without a bucket. She pushes him away again. And when Jesus calls her then to confess that she's got secrets, she's got troubles and, and pains and and, and burdens going on in her life. I mean, that's why she's out there in the middle of the day, right? Her, she's a reputation ruined woman. The other women will not travel with her. She, she, she'd be beaten by them if she showed her face at the hour when the rest of them went in the early morning. When Jesus invites her to talk about the pain of that by mentioning her husband, uh, she, she, she diverts his inquiry all over again. She, she tries another strategy. She, she praises him as a prophet and raises the ancient debate of whether Jews or Samaritans had it right, whether God preferred to be worshipped on Mount Gerizim as the Samaritans believed, or in Jerusalem as maintained by the Jews. And when Jesus still finally refuses to be diverted, from his relentless pursuit for the heart and the wonder of this woman. When Jesus keeps coming on, she piously cites her hope that when the Messiah comes, all these thorny questions will be answered. And you can just see Jesus saying in either exasperation or perhaps amusement, I who speak to you am he. I don't know why, exactly, this woman responded as she did to Jesus. I mean, he tried hard to build the connection. Maybe she was too ashamed of who she was to share herself, her deep hurts, her longings with him. Maybe she was just too toughened now by life, too proud to yield control of the conversation to this challenging man. What I do know, however, is that some of us run from intimacy with God too. We do. We keep him at arm's length. Even in worship, we do it. You know? God forbid we should open our hands. You know? We just... We just are not ready. We just don't feel able to go to that place of vulnerability. We will mouth the words of the readings and the hymns. We'll bow our heads as, as if to pray. We'll occasionally tune in when the scriptures are read or when some guy up front is preaching. But what we do not do much of the time is worship. At least not the soul-quenching kind of worship. We come to the well but we often miss the moment of intimacy. The kind of intimacy we might have had with the wondrous one who is right here, right now, in our midst. Jesus says, the true worshipers God seeks aren't those who just Worship him in word, in familiar motion, but in spirit, at the intimate level. And all of Christ's questions to this woman at the well, to you and to me, are targeted at reaching down and finding us at that deep, thirsty place at the center of our soul and opening us up to what he wants to be and to do in us. The living water I want to give you is my spirit, says Jesus, will, which will become in you a spring bubbling up to life eternal. But my spirit, it's only going to adhere to your spirit. My, my spirit is only going to go down as far as you are willing to meet it with your spirit with the reality of who you are. Offer me a cup of empty liturgy, it's going to come back empty. Offer me a cup of prayer or music or even silence in which your spirit, the intimate longings and leanings of your soul are genuinely present and I will fill you up to overflowing with myself. If you ask the one before you, to give you to drink. He would give you a spring that would well up to life eternal. Jesus says that the real worshipers, the ones to whom God pours out the living water, will be those who worship him not simply in spirit but in truth. Now, the Greek word for truth is a fascinating one. It is the word alathia, and it literally means without a veil. It's like the moment at the altar, and the veil's lifted up, and they're face to face. This is the reason that Christians focus so much on Jesus. It's why we're just Jesus people. It's because we believe that when we meet Jesus, we are meeting God without the veil. Okay? We're being given access intimately to the character and the nature of the true God. And, and, and there's a deeper meaning to it as well, this image of truth without a veil. In the great temple of Jerusalem, there used to hang this gigantic curtain it was almost like a rug, a tapestry that hung from the ceiling. And it separated the, the place, the innermost place of the temple called the Holy of Holies where God was uh, thought to, to dwell uh, from the outside place where ordinary people dwelt. Dirty, impure, not so holy people dwelled. The, the great temple veil, as it was called, separated the the place where God does his stuff from the place where all the rest of us do our stuff. The rest of the time. It separated Sunday from Monday, if you understand what I'm I'm, I'm imaging for you here. Now, the temple veil was the symbol of the separation between the sacred and the secular. The holy place, the worldly place. And the Bible teaches that at the precise moment when Jesus died upon the cross... When the work of redemption that Christ went there to accomplish was finished, a great tear went down the middle of that gigantic temple veil. At that very moment, God declared that, the, that, that worship, which is the experience, again, of intimately beholding the wonder of God and being filled up to overflowing with his presence, that, that experience of worship of beholding and reflecting His glory is no longer going to be confined to mere devotional acts in religious buildings, but it it is going to flow out now into the rest of the world. Worship is going to become something that moves out now into every part of the world. If attending worship on Sunday doesn't alter the way we live on Monday, then chances are it wasn't in truth. The veil is still up. The curtain is still hanging. When truly practiced, worship helps us remove the veil between the sacred and the secular. When it's truly received, the living water flows into our cup and it runs out of this room and it waters our weekday lives. If we've genuinely raised our voices in adoration and praise today, for example, we're going to find it easier to notice his blessings and thank him wherever we are on Tuesday. It's going to be, oh, that's familiar to me. I was doing that on Sunday. I see it now. His blessings are here. I praise you for these. If we've truly confessed our sins to God in awestruck reverence, in this place, we're going to be much quicker to admit and, and turn from our selfish acts or those harsh words that may slip out on Wednesday. If we've made the effort to really hear God's word, read and preached here in this place this morning, we're going to find ourselves much more attuned to the promptings of His Holy Spirit when an important decision or an opportunity comes our way on Thursday. If we have actually prayed for other people here in this place today, we're going to find ourselves even more sensitive to the concerns and the pains of people we meet on Friday. And if we've offered ourselves and our gifts with integrity here, we're not going to find it very difficult, or certainly not as difficult, to share our resources out there next Saturday. Worship in truth helps bring down the veil, connects the sacred and the secular, flows out into the world. Some of you will remember me telling the story of an unusual fountain that stands in the center of a village in Germany. And carved into the stone face of this fountain are these words of invitation, come and be refreshed, And many a thirsty traveler has been thrilled to see the invitation, has approached the fountain and then been terribly confused because there is absolutely no evidence of water in the basin. Furthermore, there is nothing, no button, no lever, no pedal, nothing that would actually appear to summon water into that basin. And furthermore, there's there's not even any openings from which water could go, apparently, into that basin. And for that reason, many person walks away from that place very, very disappointed. But now and then, the statistically unusual person does the unthinkable, unimaginable, kind of weird thing, and actually bends down, bows down, leans out and over the bowl of the fountain as if to drink from empty space. And with that act of faith, the shifting of the weight trips an unseen mechanism that sends water, the purest, coldest, cleanest water you've ever tasted, cascading into the basin from apertures hidden beneath the rim. It works a little like this. Christ waits for us The well. But in order to receive what he offers, we have to stubbornly deny ourselves that sort of dry devotion that sometimes has masqueraded as worship. And instead receive the invitation Jesus has inscribed for us. Come to me, says Jesus. Come on. And be refreshed. Come, let us bow down in worship, writes the psalmist. Come, let us kneel before the Lord our maker, writes the psalmist. For Jesus promises, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give you will become in you a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. Would you please bow with me in prayer? God, we worship you not because your ego demands it, but because it's the only natural response to the wonder of your glory and the splendor of your love. We worship you in spirit Humbly offering and receiving the intimate fellowship you intend for us at this well. And as we lean into you today with all that we are, fill us up with yourself afresh, Lord. So that our lives beyond this room also become acts of worship in truth. Let everything we do in this week ahead become a sparkling, refreshing evidence That your grace is not locked behind some curtain in the temple. But it's now available to thirsty people everywhere. Make our lives ladles of your life-changing love for all we meet. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.